You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Jennifer Morrison. She is an assistant professor of English at Xavier University, where she teaches African-American literature and other courses. She has published on Ernest Gaines' Of Love and Dust, Jasmine Ward and Kiasi Lehman, and she's currently working on a project that looks at Attica Locke's Blackwater Rising. Today, we're going to talk about Lillian Smith, Ernest Gaines, libraries banning books, and a bunch of other things. So welcome, Dr. Morrison. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited for this because, you know, we've known each other for a long time. Mm-hmm. And typically, whenever I teach Ernest Gaines, I have you come and speak to my class uh, via Zoom or whatever. And we were doing a love and dust this semester. So we Zoomed and talked. And then after we were done with our conversation, we started talking about Lillian Smith. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, you withheld from me for the longest time. Yeah that you read Killers of the Dream, of course, when, how old were you when you read it? Uh, I would say I, so the trajectory was I picked up Strange Fruit um, and I read that first. I've got to tell you that I read Strange Fruit <laughs> first and then Killers of the Dream. Um, and I would say I was probably out of grad school. So maybe 25, 26 when I read it. Um, yeah, so I had read Strange Fruit and then I read uh, Killers of the Dream. After reading Strange Fruit, I was like, okay, who is this woman? Oh, she's white. I want to know, you know, so and, me, and I had heard a lot about Killers of the Dream, actually. So I was curious about it. Let me ask this question, because you and I both have academic trajectories kind of the same, looking at African-American literature and studying African-American literature. So we've read stuff like Gaines of Love and Dust. We've read stuff like Octavia Butler's Kindred. We've read plenty of novels by African-American writers that deal with interracial intimacy. Mm-hmm. And the first book that I read from Smith was Strange Fruit as well. And when I read it, I really didn't like it right. because I had read Gaines and Butler mm-hmm. and a lot of other people. Right. So then when I read Killers of the Dream, I kind of saw what she was doing. So that's kind of my question. Like, how was your kind of response after everything else that you've read to reading that book first before reading Killers of the Dream? Well, you know that I think I had a similar response to you. I didn't love uh, Strange Fruit. I thought I appreciated the story that she was trying to tell. It's just like, like you said, you know, if you've read Toni Morrison, if you've read Ernest Gaines, if you read James Baldwin, like I read Another Country before I read Killers of the Dream and I'd read, right. yeah, that's a whole nother discussion. And I'd <laughs> read, um, what was it? Uh, of Love and Dust years before. So see I like how you put that that in the sort of depiction of interracial intimacy I found I think I had to I had to keep in mind that this is from the perspective of a white southern woman and so you know she was she's you know she's maneuvering different things and maybe and like I said if I had read another country like within that same year right so I'm comparing it to Baldwin which 
isn't probably very fair, but I definitely was thinking about it through that lens. And so then I read, you know, but I was like, I, I think that she was doing, she was attempting to do something interesting or tell some kind of truth in um, Strange Fruit. So then I hear, or I read some reviews of uh, Killers of the Dream and they, you know, it was, so I know that it wasn't super popular at the time and it wasn't one of her known texts in that way, but I'd heard a lot of people just kind of like discussing it in a in sort of like a if you know you know way right mm -hmm. um and they praised it uh and so i'm just like okay let me read it then and the way i pick a book is i go to the bookstore flip through it and see if i want to buy it and i happened upon some passages and i'm like oh okay so then i buy it and i did feel that <sighs> i felt killers of the dream was a braver attempt at discussing interracial intimacy then the narrative I understand why she chose that the storytelling and fiction and the narrative to try to you know work some of that stuff out but I did feel like Killers of the Dream now I'm not saying it goes as far as it could go it goes to some interesting places and then diverts from there I don't know if that was an editing issue or if she just felt like okay this is as far as I can go or she felt like she was just trying to piecemeal it there I don't know but I felt it was a more, it was a braver, more honest. I don't know. I, I just had never read anything like that before, if that makes sense. I think, I think with killers, and I say this to everybody when I talk about this, I think with that book is it's her personal journey. That's why I think yeah. it's the way it does. Yeah. So it, it may be kind of piecemeal and kind of move from here to there, but it's, it's mm -hmm. herself trying to explore herself. And I think that that's what's okay. important about Smith or any writer that we read is they're exploring themselves through their writing. And mm -hmm. I do think if she started with Killers, then Strange Fruit would have, or if I read Killers first, or if she published it first, whatever, I think I would have enjoyed Strange Fruit more. Mm -hmm. I reread Strange Fruit last year for a book club, and mm -hmm. I find myself enjoying it more because I had read more of Lillian Smith, and I'd actually started paying attention more to the style too. Stylistically, it's a really good book. I mean, it's it's not like Gatsby in style, but it's the same thing I say Kevin about Gatsby is that I don't like the narrative, but I love Fitzgerald's writing. Uh -huh. There are moments that are really good, especially the one where Tracy's thinking about during the war, the dirt that won't come off of him, basically. Mm -hmm. The dirt of all these racist stereotypes and everything when thinking about Nani, which reminds mm -hmm. me of Gene Toomer a little bit too. I forget which story in Kane, but the one where the white guys basically like, why can't she just be a woman? Why does she have to be an in woman, right? Mm -hmm, Those types mm -hmm. of discussions. But the one issue that I have with Strange Fruit that I think other people have too was with Nani. Like okay. her her sister, um, I forgot her sister's name, Bessie. Mm -hmm. Anyways, her, her sister and her brother, I think are more fleshed out than Nani is, but Nani just doesn't seem, and I started thinking about this too, as you were talking with Pauline and Of Love and Dust. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm really starting to think now is Pauline really fleshed out in Love and Dust, which is another discussion. Kind of not. Like, yeah. honestly, I mean, but, but that, it, so, I mean, we should talk about Nani. And if that discussion sort of circles around that, that might have been why I didn't like it, right? As much as I wanted to. I think that's why I didn't like it at first. Yeah. And, and, and I think why. So, okay. So, what you have is a, a narrative. And so, this is sort of like, I think, let me, let me break it down. Number one, we've seen this story told many times before. 
that's part of an issue that you run into. Like you said, you're reading a novel about interracial intimacy between a black woman and a white man. This is not a rare topic in American lit. I don't know if you remember that weird short story by Richard Wright, Long Black Song. Yeah. Um, that is a <laughs> weird story. Uh, but but the, the, no. interesting, the interesting thing with that, just a side note, the thing that I like about those stories, Uncle Tom's Children and that one, mm-hmm. is use of music and cutting off the, cutting off the lyrics and then you fill in it it's anyways but so you have a lot of people telling this story oh people in in even about a very specific time period people are still telling this story in some way um as the vanishing half i don't know if you read that Mm -hmm. um that's by Brett Bennett. It's supposed to be an HBO miniseries, apparently. But that also kind of dabbles into that type of story. And the problem with that story, right, or that dynamic or that type of narrative is it follows so many certain types of conventions that in order to probably tell it effectively, you've got to subvert a lot of those conventions. And what I mean by that is, when you're reading a narrative about interracial intimacies, as I said before, between a white man and a black woman, the problem I felt, or at least I can kind of see from 50,000 feet away with Smith's story is that it just hits on every single convention and it doesn't necessarily subvert them well enough for you to not even, I won't even say be believable, but to be engaged and buy into the story, if that makes sense. Um, you know, she's traditionally beautiful in the ways that we, in a white supremacist way. So we've got, you know, so it's almost like that's a, um, that's a requirement, right? For the narrative to move forward. She's extremely passive. She's extremely naive. She's extremely, you know, it's just, un- it's even though, where- mm-hmm. even though she's a Spelman grad. Right. And then also, and in, in, in some interest, she's just not, you know, the thing that I kind of really liked about Baldwin's take, and, and I'm going to be very specific here on the Black women that get involved in these relationships, or even what makes Richard Wright's weird short story sort of compelling, is the ways that it just, some of those stories just don't engage those conventions. And, and I say that to say, and, and let me just take it off a little off road here, and we're going to swing back around and get back on the road. Um... I remember, do you remember that woman? Uh, uh, she was from Tulane. She came speak at UL. She's a professor at Tulane. Um, she wrote, and you know what? I'm on my computer now. I can look up the book. It's called The Curious Case of the American Quadroon. Yeah, I remember that book. I remember okay. that. Um, Emily Toth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, look at you. No one names or something. <laughs> I'm just not, I don't remember something. So so, so the book, She her talk was really interesting because she basically sort of, so she said something controversial, which you should always do, right? In historical research, uh, you shouldn't do it if you don't find anything interesting, but she debunked the myth of plissage, right? Exactly. And one of the things that I, as someone who's interested well, in- well, 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 back up. What is that for listeners who may not know what that okay. is? Okay, yeah, okay. So the idea of plissage is basically that, so in New Orleans, in Louisiana, particularly in New Orleans, there were a group of women, um, mixed race, usually quadroon, octoroon, could pass basically as white or at least Mm -hmm. um, appearing more white than black. And this was a class of women that were groomed and bred to be courtesans or mistresses of the wealthy white men, mainly French or Spanish, part of the Creole community in New Orleans, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so allegedly, right, historically, that's where some of the 
the Creoles and the powerful Creoles of New Orleans come from, right? These families of women who, they, these men would have side families with these Creole women. They'd be married to a white lady, but they would have a family with this Creole mistress and they would be treated like a second wife, right? Right, and one, um, one good example, I don't remember the whole story in it, but Frank Yerby's The Fox is a Hero, Stephen Fox mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. finds Desiree and she's on the ramparts. I think he sees her at a quadrant ball. I think George Washington Cable has some stuff. Um, Yeah. There's a, there's another reference in Charles Chestnut's Paul Marchand. Uh So it's, it's throughout a lot of literature set in New Orleans, of course. Mm -hmm. And so what Emily Clark finds when she um, does archival research is she just doesn't see the type of evidence available to her to make the claim that this was a thing. Um, And what she says is that it becomes a narrative, right? A narrative Mm -hmm. that comes out of the anxiety over the refugees and immigrants of the Haitian revolution. Which doubled or tripled the population population of New Orleans. Orleans. And and weren't most of the the immigrants who came in, weren't they the wealthy? Right. So what what we know and what you have to understand about Haiti is that the Haitian Revolution, that middle class of people that were not right, the white landowners, those mixed race people who were educated and in positions of power got kicked out, too, and they fled to New Orleans. And so what you have here is an educated class of mixed race people who are upsetting the equilibrium of the status of the races in New Orleans during this time period. So you, so the story then, or Clark argues that this was a way to demonize this immigrant class of people who were disrupting the status quo in New Orleans. It's a way to explain, right? These mixed race, well-educated, middle-class, you know, what probably very turned out not, you know, when in, in nice clothes and, and probably spoke French really well, spoke English really well. It's a way of tainting them by calling them prostitutes instead of refugees from a society where they were actually a buffer class, right? right. So what happens then is this narrative grows over time and then you get sort of a like a touristy exotification of this identity that then becomes folklore where everyone's great great grandmother who happens to have a french last name was a creole courtesan right exactly so you know even beyonce you know tells that as a part of her narrative um which i'm not saying it is or it isn't but what i as someone who you know does some folklore work recognize is the narrative the way that narrative is so constructed and unique and uniform, as you said, throughout all these other works, that it can't possibly be something that is that stable in a true historical way. Like that is a form of storytelling. Like this is a story tell, a story we tell about race, right? When the historical record does not reflect that act as an actual narrative. Right. And then now and Nani kind of plays in with all this type of stuff, not with the placard, with the facade, but with other kind of narrative tropes. Right. And so part of the issue then is, and, and then I challenged this narrative to another scholar um, in African-American lit. And then I was told that, well, what would a white woman, like how, why would she want that narrative of plissage to be true? Like, why would she want that? And my argument would be um, the narrative plissage is actually way more flattering than the actual experience of 
slave women during this time period, right? So plissage, the, the narrative tropes of plissage indicate a, um, a gentlemanly-like experience. Um, these, you know, it's, it's, it's chivalry. It's almost, what's his name, Scott? It has elements of like, you know- Sir Walter that, Scott. Sir Walter Scott. I mean, look, you know, this side family that you treat this one really well, you educate her children, she gets property passed down. When you go in slave narratives, that is not usually the experience. And so I would argue that I think that someone who is white, even though you may not necessarily want to engage interracial intimacy this is the best form of it that leaves everybody looking the best you know looking the best way whereas when you go into the actual historical record um reading slave narratives reading accounts of slavery and sexual violence you notice two things one it's not this organized stable system where a certain type of person gets treated a certain type of way recall linda brent where she talks about her experience on the plantation as a, you know, a, someone who probably is more mixed race than other slaves. And she's like, everybody got it. You know, it, it didn't matter like how close you were to white or not. If you were just a black female in the vicinity, you were sexually abused and you were not, you know, it wasn't like this, th you were the princess of the plantation type thing. It, it, you know, in a lot of times when you read these slave narratives, a lot of the tropes and storytelling that we tell about the slave experience doesn't really pan out. Um, and so what happens is, and I, I say all that to say, when I read Lillian Smith, I see so many of those tropes about the relationships of interracial intimacy that even in someone like Baldwin, like Morrison, like um, uh, Gaines, they subvert to a certain extent. Um, and, and, and so I think one of the things that I was reading, like you said, here's this Spelman grad, beautiful, light, um, black woman who falls in love with this white son of the town. My first question is, why is this Spellman grad here? Like that doesn't, right. why, you know, like- Why what, does she come back to serve as a nurse for somebody basically, exactly. right? Yeah, and she's beautiful. She has like, you know, think about what's, um, I'm trying to remember the name now, it's escaping me, uh, passing, Nella Larson, right? Yep. Think about how she positions her mixed race, highly educated characters. They they make interesting choices, but they don't make, like their her narratives subvert some of this stuff. So I say all that to say, um, I think my and possibly your reaction to Strange Fruit is it tend, there's not a left subversion of that narrative of interracial intimacy for me to find it interesting enough to be compelled by it. Well, you were talking too about the passage system and how it kind of upholds the white woman's yes. view of what's going on, which makes me think of Killers of the Dream and Three Ghosts, where she talks about the past that the, that the white men moved to the quarters to basically rape black women, the children right. that came out of that, and then the nurses, right? But the yes. other thing I thought about too, when you mentioned that is actually what sparks the relationship between Nani and Tracy. It's him saving her from being raped when she's like six or seven. She's like a kid. Yeah. By a couple of white boys. Right. 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 She may not be six or seven, but, but she's a kid. She, she's a few years younger than him. Mm -hmm. So that kind of chivalric or gentlemanly thing. Yeah. yeah. Plays into that too. Mm-hmm. 
And then she night she I wouldn't say night, but but she fawns over him because he heroically saved her, basically, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Um, well, I think one of the things that I think so Smith, I think, by having her vulnerable and almost brutal brutalized, right? Mm-hmm. I think he's acknowledging that this is a brutal society. This woman, any young woman um, of color, especially is at risk in this very specific way. So I want to acknowledge that by putting this character in danger, but I also don't want to actually brutalize that character. I want to somewhat protect that character so that she can have this type of relationship with this character in, in a way that, so if, if, if this thing succeeds, right, if her brutalization succeeds, if she's raped, if she's attacked by these white men, in what way can you have her get together with Tracy and have that narrative? Like, it's just not, right? And so then for Tracy, for her and Tracy to have that relationship, you know, it's very, I'm trying to look for the word I'm trying to say here, but there's a lot, there's a lot at stake, you know, when you're describing that type of relationship. And I think she's still somewhat trying to have hope and protect something of the humanity of the society that people still can, you know, have some behavior that's not completely brutal or savage in in that way. Like, I, I really believe that because, you know, something about, so I taught Uncle Tom's Cabin I want to say a couple of years ago. Uh, yeah, I know. And and I don't know. Do you remember what Baldwin said about um, the, the novel? It's been he a while said, since I've read it, but yeah. Yeah, he basically was like, yes, this is an effective novel um, in a lot of ways of exposing the brutality of slavery and you know racism. But he's like, it doesn't really deal with the white supremacist underpinnings of the reason you have slavery in the first place. And right. So basically, even the, the the way that the characters are arranged is in a white supremacist context. Um, the, I mean, we're not going to talk about the Piccaninny type uh, topsy or whatever, and we're not going to talk about, but also you talk about uh, George and I think it was Eliza, how they're fair-skinned, more intelligent, more articulate, and more, you know, engaged with their discourses about humanity and freedom. And that is... That is a vestige of white supremacy lodged into the characterization. I I say that to say, I don't think that Lillian Smith was imbuing her characters with white supremacist traits, but I do think that it would have been very difficult for her to conceive of a relationship between a character who was not as closely aligned to certain ideals and values um, with the Southern society. Uh, and, and so in ways that Baldwin and Gaines and Morrison and Walker and people like that don't necessarily engage. I mean, think about, go ahead. I was going to say one one thing as you were talking to that I kind of thought back to, I'm I'm stuck on the, on the plissage thing. Mm -hmm. And the more I think about it, the more I think about it, that's what's happening in Strange Fruit Mm -hmm. to a certain extent, because of the fact that once- yeah. But once Nani tells him that she's pregnant, he's like, all right. And, and he's coming to all this come to Jesus moment at the revival, which I want to mention Dunwoody in a second. Mm-hmm. But he's basically like, well, I got to marry. I got to marry somebody now. So he has this other girl. I forgot her name who, mm-hmm. you know, was he was going to marry this white girl. And then he's going to keep her Nani, you know, set up basically in a facade system. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's also discussions of abortion and all that type of stuff, too. But anyways. 
but I'm thinking too, what she kind of does is she has that voice of the society through Dunwoody, through the church. Because remember mm-hmm. Dunwoody, when he's talking to, to Tracy, basically says, oh, just use her. Yeah. Just do this. He's basically what Bon Bon's doing to Pauline initially. And, you know. Or what uh, uh, his name said in uh, Jane Pittman, right? Just take right. her. It's yours for you to take. Right. When uh, T-Bob wants to, you know, marry and run away with Mary Agnes, right? Mm-hmm. So she's she is working with all that. I don't, and my, I think I agree with you. She's not he's she's not subverting any of that stuff, and it's kind of yeah. putting these tropes. But she's doing more than I think Faulkner or Mitchell or individuals like that are doing. Oh, well, definitely more than Mitchell, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that kind of leads me to another question, and like we can go off on everything, but. You and I have done a lot of work on Gaines. So do you mm-hmm. see connections between Smith and Gaines? We've mentioned him, Ernest Gaines, you know, before. Do you see any connections between their work? Because the more I read, you and I both read all of Ernest Gaines' stuff. And the more mm-hmm. I read Smith, I see a lot of kind of overlap in different yeah. ways. You know, just topic-wise, right? I mean, they're talking about the same things. Um, they structure their works I'll say this. I definitely think Gaines is aware and understands the suppressive nature of a town, a space, a plantation. And I think Smith understands that very well too. Um, The way that Maxwell is set up and the way that she describes that intimately in those opening. Exactly. And like how you're always being watched, how you uh, are being surveilled um, and how the voices of the community, like you said, speak through these characters to let them know what they should and should not be doing. The way Aunt Margaret speaks for the black community, right? And of love and us. The way that, you know, it's just their construction of Southern, the Southern town and the experience of being in a Southern town and living there is practically the same as far as I'm concerned. They're very similar. Um, you know, she's a white woman writing this, he's a black man writing this, but what they both understand, I think very intimately is how um, constrictive it is and how you feel smothered, right? And how difficult it is to carve out an individuality in a town in a space like that. Um, and, 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 you know, and it goes back to, and well, and you could think about Nani returning from Spelman you know, Gaines has a lot of characters who go off to school and then they return back to these small towns, the plantation, what have you not. But I'm not, you know, they, these characters in Gaines, they seem to at least understand that they've come back for a purpose, uplift the community, teach, what have you not. And I think this character, Nani, seems sort of like, I don't know, well, I'll say this, I have questions in that why not stay in Atlanta? Why come back? What drew you back here? Is it, and if it's that man, Tracy, right? I think that sort of suggested that if he saved her from being attacked from really young, maybe there's something about him drawing her back to that town. Um, I would have maybe, that is something worth exploring, right? It, it's it's a thought worth exploring a little more. Um, but to your point, it does seem like Nani functions as a plot device slash almost character than an actual fully realized character on her own. And right. could that be, could that be, and I'm gonna offer this up to you, Lillian Smith felt she was limited to get inside the perspective of a head of a person like that. I don't, I don't think so because Nani's sister and Ed, she delves into their psyche. Right. And she, and she delves into their psyche just as deeply, I would say, as Tracy or Tracy's sister. Mm-hmm. So 
within that kind of framework too, maybe Nani being the victim of all the sexual violence as well. Maybe right. that's why. Mm-hmm. So I could possibly see that, but I don't think, I don't think she's scared or apprehensive about exploring the psyche of a black character. Okay. Okay. Beca- because she is getting deeply into those characters and their interior interiority. Well, I mean, then maybe we have to contend that some of Nani's choices don't make sense or they're limited in how much sense they make to us. Um, I mean, because that's what I'm thinking. Some of her choices just don't make sense. No. We don't have enough. We don't have enough feedback to see to connect the dots to her choices in ways that like not to bring it back to Gaines, but Pauline's choices make sense, even though we don't know her as well. Her choices right. do make sense. Um and he, you know, he's not, I mean, that character, so, so I, and correct me if I'm wrong, Strange Fruit is not told from first person, correct? It's multiple points of view. She's, shif- she's shifting each chapter. She's shifting each chapter. And so what happens is say something like in Love of Dust, it's told from Jim's point of view as he sees that point of view to other people, but through, still through his mouth, right? Through right. his lens. And so what happens is, we understand how limited we are because we're seeing the characters through Jim. Lillian Smith, she doesn't sort of have that, I guess you could say protection or that's, she didn't make that move stylistically to say, well, I'm, you know, I can't, we can't peer inside Nani's choices in that way because I'm looking at it through the lens of Tracy thinking about her. She doesn't have that the way that Gain sort of has that with Jim saying, well, if, if you don't know something about Pauline, it's because Jim doesn't know it. Right. You know what I mean? Not because I failed to think through deeply into explaining that character better. So I like the fact that you said that Gaines and Smith both kind of both kind of deal with these constrictive spaces. Mm-hmm. These both kind of surveyed spaces. Um, and that's a really interesting thing I haven't thought about. When I think about Gaines and Smith, one thing that keeps coming up with me is her discussions of poor whites and blacks and the separation. Cause I think of Gaines with his discussion, especially of Love, of Love and Dust and other novels of wealthy whites, wealthy white landowners separating Cajun specifically and blacks, right? Mm-hmm. Or Creoles. Mm-hmm. So the ways that those kind of machinations work and the ways that the capitalist system kind of works. Cause I remember you and I talking before about, you know, who's the, who's the antagonist in A Gathering of Old Men, Ernest Gaines' novel? And you're like, well, it's capitalism. Mm-hmm. And I was yeah. like, that that kind of makes sense because there isn't really a clear enemy in right. that novel. It's more well, kind he, of an it, idea. Well, it, and it's because Gaines won't let you have that. I don't know if you recall the conversation Mapes has with the men. He's like, mm-hmm. you know, this enemy that you're fighting oh, no longer exists. Yeah, it, he's, they're they're gone. Like, and it's too late. The time has passed, which is sort of like a critique on like how and and not I, the thing that gains that we always have to be careful about is that it's not his perspective. It's the perspective of the character that's speaking it. But according to Mapes, that enemy is gone because at the end of the day, Fix doesn't ride and he won't. Right. You know, he doesn't. And they killed his son. I mean, somebody killed his son, right? Charlie kills his son, but like he doesn't ride. Um, and honestly realistically speaking, even if Gil had not, his son had not gone to him and said, please don't ride. I don't think he would have ridden anyway because he's old, number one. And number two, the structure and the things that would have enabled him to do that and terrorize those men, you know, they're 30, 40 years out of that. 
You know, I mean, this that story was written in the 70s. So in a lot of ways, right, the enemy or the villain that you want or that you desire to engage in these narratives, he's sort of like taken from you or moved from you and asked you to think a lot more deeply about the interplay between these relationships of these people, which I think is really good because I think a lot of times it's too easy to say. And honestly, if you look at any of his books, he doesn't lay it all on one person. I mean, of love and dust is the closest you come to saying, okay, this dude is terrible. That's Marshall Abair. And then in other texts, he appears as pathetic. So it's sort of like, you can't even have that. But in a lot of ways, um, he sort of won't hang that mantle on any one character in that way, which I think is, you know, how life kind of goes sometimes. Yeah. I, I was just thinking about love and dust. I was like, Really, for me, the enemy of love and dust, thinking about in our conversation, is the inability of Pauline and Bon Bon or Louise and Marcus to have a fruitful relationship mm-hmm. within that community. So it is the system. And Marshall Aber, of course, is at the top of that system. But that kind of leads me to another question, thinking uh-huh. about all of this. Because one of the things that Lillian Smith always says, and I mentioned to you before we started recording, I was reading some letters from her. She never wanted to be referred to as a race writer, even though she wrote about race mm-hmm. um, and the and racial issues. And Ernest Gaines is kind of the same way. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't want to be labeled as a as a black writer. I forgot exactly how he phrases things, but he just wanted to be known as a writer. Right. So what do you kind of think about that discussion? And you mentioned that you were in class today and the class you were teaching, you actually had this kind of discussion a little bit with some of your students. Yeah, so I'm teaching um, an introductory millet class that's focusing on Black writers uh, in the short story. And one of the things I mentioned was you can read any other writer and who is not Black or not minority, and you will not, you, and if you look at the reviews and what people say about these narratives, they don't bring up race. But if that would have been a black writer, the first thing you write about is like this black writer and you, you view the text through the lens of race. We're all guilty of it, it's what we do. And so the question becomes, I was reading a piece that said that we've got to read black writers beyond racial politics, meaning how is this a simple story of class? How is this a story, a love story? How is this, you know, a, a fantasy story, like whatever. And I think I would not, I still think racial politics matter. I would just rather relieve the burden of reading racial politics off of just black writers and put it on everybody else. Now, it's interesting that Lillian Smith says she doesn't want to be a race writer because, you know, she's a white lady. So you would think a lot of writers of her generation writing during that time just didn't want to be seen as women writers, right? Like that was the burden that they had to face. But since she's she's explicitly choosing to announce and engage with racial politics and ideas in her work. She's, I mean, think about it. She's writing alongside Flannery O'Connor, who, you know. (laughs) She's writing alongside Carson McCullers. Carson McCullers. Tennessee Williams. Eudora Welty. You know, she's writing alongside these other Southern white ladies and men. um, And you know, they have a lot of race in their books and and works as well. Lots about race there. But, you know, because she discusses it and engages it head on, she's going to get that label, right? And Killers of the Dream is probably furthering that label. But um, in a lot of ways, I think she was very aware that because she's engaging and welcoming that engagement about race and talking about racially fraught things in a way that probably a lot of people weren't doing, that 
looked like her and shared her identity, then she knew she was going to be thought of as like this person writing about race. Um, I think it's a, you know, I think for her, probably was a rather naive thing to say. But I also think that um, a lot of those modernist writers, uh, Ellison, Wright, Baldwin, all of them also didn't, and Gaines even, he did not want to be thought of as this race writer who just wrote about race. Right. Problem is, when you write about Black people, you are thought of as writing about race, and there's no getting around that. Well, it reminds um, me, it reminds me of um, Their Eyes Are Watching God and Hurston, and then the pushback yeah. from Wright and people about that. There's yeah. this long tradition, I wouldn't just say in African-American literature, but there's this tradition of what role should art play? And of course, Wright's kind of pushback was it should be social realism or social protest, right? And Their Eyes Are Watching God has racial aspects in it with following the hurricane and things like that. But it's dealing with, um, again, I'm confused, Eatonville. Mm -hmm. It's dealing with the Black community and their interactions with one another. And like interaction with the white community very rarely comes into that, except for right. at the end. That was kind of the same pushback with Frank Yerby, right? Frank Yerby wrote protest stories. He wrote social protest stories. Health card, what he won the O. Henry Award for in 44, was a social protest story. Mm -hmm. He tried to get a social protest novel published in 46, 45 or 46. He wrote it. The publisher didn't want it because it was an educated black man mm -hmm. that, was, that was at the center of it. And they're like, nobody's going to read this. This is following you know, Native Son with Bigger Thomas. Yep. So then he switches to these costume novels that don't deal with race on the surface like fox mm -hmm. is a hero centers on stephen fox a white irishman who comes to louisiana makes his money starts a plantation and then loses it during the war right mm -hmm. underneath the surface though you have the enslaved who were propping him up and building the plantation mm -hmm. but black critics are in a bon top from one langston hughes praised him because he'd done away with discussions of race right. on the surface right Mm -hmm. Yet following that, he followed up with those similar novels and they wanted him to go back and be and engage with social protest. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think it's this kind of, I'm thinking African-American lit here specifically. I'm thinking it's this kind of tension between what role should literature play during mid-century, I would say. Well, you know, I mean, it kind of, so you, you, and it's hard. Well, remember Robert Hayden, who's like, I'm a poet, I'm an American mm -hmm. poet, you know, and then you go and you read his poetry and it's about black topics, but it's, it's the form, right? Is traditional American Western forms. When you think about what those writers were to the, the next literary movement, because mm -hmm. remember they're writing right before the mm -hmm. Cannon Wars, Black Arts Movement, multiculturalism, all of that, where people embrace the fact that you're writing about race, almost a cartoonish level, but they're definitely okay. And they don't want to not deal with that. I think a part of their anxiety was like, I need to get published and I want to appeal to everyone. I want to write the great American novel and I want everybody to buy my books. And, you know, I want everyone to engage with this stuff, right? Um, in ways that the people that came later after them you know, for a while, they did, they embraced this idea that, look, hey, I'm a Black writer, that's fine. Uh, I'm this type of writer, that's fine. I think some of that stuff does come out of knowing that the people that created the syllabi, the people that are publishing in New Yorker, the people that are, you know, reviewing your book and the people that you're working with are in your ear saying, you want to be more than just a Black writer. You want to be more than just a woman writer. Um, you want to be you want to make the list along with the white men. You know what I mean? Like, and cause when you go back and you look at 
these lists that they compile mm-hmm. the best of, you know, they were trying to get on that list. And that yeah. list is not that diverse, nope. <laughs> especially if you're writing 1940s, 1950s, 19, like when these people were writing. So I think they were also cognizant of what they were up against in regards to like their identity as writers and how to get published and, and, and get your name out there. It gets, it gets me to two things. I always think about a quote from Yerby during an interview. And he said, I despise adjectives, adjectives, which are the enemies of nouns. Mm. And I always think about that quote when I'm thinking about these discussions of black writer or Asian American writer. We don't use the term white writer, like you said, right? Yeah. And the other thing I think about too, with kind of all these discussions you saw with your students is no matter what, it depends on what lens we look at the text. We can look at it through class. We can look at it through gender. We can look at it through sexuality. We can look at it through any lens but race is always kind of there too, even in texts that apparently have nothing to do with race, which is why I always think back to Toni Morrison's Playing in the Dark, mm-hmm. where she talks about the Africanist presence in the text, specifically looking at Poe right. and Fitzgerald, um, Poe and Hemingway and things like that. Because yes. yes. all of this stuff with Poe has nothing to do with Black, white race issues until you know kind of his historical positions on slavery and everything. And then you kind of read the monstrosity in it. Hot Frog is a prime example. Again, basically you can read that story as the threat of slave insurrection, right? You know, one of the articles, and I I wish I knew the author, it was a very good article. Um, It was about how Melville writes Benito Serino after the Haitian Revolution, that that novel, that novella, excuse me, is definitely about the anxiety that mm-hmm. the whole global South had after this about the success of the Haitian Revolution, right? And it would be hard to, and when you think about like the Curious Case of the American Quadroon, I think what had what I think probably academically has definitely been done, but hasn't been culturally done in a general sense is think about what the Haitian revolution did to the psyche of the Western world. Um, I actually was on Twitter. On Twitter. When, when was the, when was the one in Point Coupee and the New Orleans one? Cause those were around the same time, right? Yeah. They were, they were not long after and I think they were inspired by. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the one in New Orleans, they put the heads on the spikes. Right. Um, and so what happens is I think we're starting now you know, like I said on Twitter, I was because the New York Times, I think it was, yeah, did a piece about why this. Hate I was just thinking about that. That money, right? Well, so, but you know, this idea though that the, Haiti was successful at a revolution and it was race based. That's incredible, right? That is really incredible, and the idea that you, psychically, what must that have done to? the Western world who is invested in colonialism and exploitation of labor and African labor, that rocks them to the core. And the piece that I'm talking about argues that slavery in the South got 10 times more brutal because of the success of that revolution. They did well, not- you also, you also have the Mexican-American war where you're looking to expand slavery. You're having, exactly. you're having these incursions in different places to expand <laughs> slavery. I mean, Don Lowe talks about it in his book and others talk about it too, that that's what's going on during this period of expansion right. in the South. I right. think about Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Minister's Black Veil, too. Yes. You yes. know, when I reread that story, and um, my kinsman, Major Mallon, who's another story I kind of think about with this, but The Minister's Black Veil, where the minister actually puts a black veil of crepe paper over his face, mm-hmm. and nobody knows why he does it. He never says anything, right? Mm-hmm. And he never takes it off even when he dies. And kind of near the end, he says, you know, 
he talks about being treated like he's an outsider and black. He's basically putting on black skin. Is kind of how I see that text. And one of the reasons I see that is because I know that he was involved with abolitionist stuff, but he also knew John Russworm. Mm-hmm. He went to college with, uh, with John Russworm, who was one of the co-founders, co-editors of the first black newspaper, the Freedom's Journal, right? They were in a literary club together. Mm-hmm. These things are, are in there underneath the surface. And thinking back to that piece you're talking about, I didn't dive into everything, but the discussions there with that piece of not acknowledging the research that's come before, you know, mm-hmm. I'm reading Jacqueline Jones Royster's um, when the first voice you hear is not your own for something. Mm-hmm. And she's talking about kind of that same thing. Yeah. Like, acting like this is, you know, unknown stuff that right. he has been suffering from what happened following the revolution. Mm-hmm. You know, it's known. I've known it. I tell my students about it every semester that there's a reason Haiti is the way it is the most yeah. impoverished nation in the right. Western hemisphere. Um, quick side note too. I would, I would go read Arna Bontop's drum drums at dusk too, which deals mm-hmm. with the Haitian revolution. And it's from a white, he it's a white life novel. So it's actually from a white person's perspective, even though Bontop is African-American. But the other thing I would read from him too is um, black thunder. Mm-hmm. which deals with Gabriel Prosser's rebellion. And Reggie actually gave me that book. And Black, Bontomp is an author that we need to yeah. recuperate. Mm-hmm. I don't know the yeah. best word to say. Yeah. Well, you know, I think, you know, when I, we, ha- we are having all these conversations, maybe not necessarily, like I said, in academia, because, you know, like Ta-Nehisi Coates said that, you know, he wrote on his Atlantic blog, he'd go to like a history conference and be like, I'm thinking about this. And they're like, we, that was 10 years ago. Like, you know, like we know. And he's like, okay, that's very humbling. But, but in general, in, in a public sense, we, there's not a lot of discussion about that particular event. I don't know that there's that many movies made about it. Um, and I think thinking about psychically the impact that that event had on, like I said, the Western world, the global South, you know, that's due for a reckoning, I I think. Um, And it'll help us understand a lot of things. I I do. Um, That I think a lot culturally, in general, colloquially, we we sort of like don't necessarily have the answers for, or we're confused about in a way that like, so the 1619 Project is trying to explain whether it does so well or not, um, the ways that our society is structured today, uh, I think re, you know, rethinking and having a national conversation about the Haitian Revolution would explain a lot of things uh, about our modern world that I think could be useful. Well, then even the fact that we occupied Haiti during the 1900s. I mean, um, Eugene yes. O'Neill's The Emperor Jones yeah. is a good kind of example and discussion. Of that. And of course, there was a film with Paul Robeson. But that mm-hmm. leads me to this other, this other question that I have that, we, that I want to end with, because mm-hmm. you're talking about this public kind of reckoning, this public kind of knowledge. Because mm-hmm. one of the things, of course, he, that you mentioned from Coates is that he can go to a history conference and like he mentioned something like we were talking about this 10 years ago. Yeah, which it does kind of seem the case. Like I notice things that pop up and I'm like, yeah, I've been thinking about this for multiple years. Mm-hmm. Why is it just now getting here? Right. And we know how academic publishing works, how things work and things like that. I think that's why a lot of historians are turning more public facing, I would say. Yeah. Well, we need public yeah. intellectuals. But it kind of leads me to this discussion, too, of the role of libraries. Because mm-hmm. you sent me a piece yesterday about Lafayette Public Library. We went to school in Lafayette. You're mm-hmm. from Lafayette, of course. And the piece had to deal with the library not having displays for Pride Month, for Black History Month. Right. Displays, which shocked me too, about Cajun heritage. It's like, 
what? I know. Um, but these types of displays and the reasoning behind the librarian doing that was saying, I don't want to get in these political issues, basically. Right. right. So really, if you want to kind of discuss that, he's self-banning or self-censoring the library itself. Mm-hmm. But really kind of these discussions of what role does the library play within kind of this space and discussion of public history, public knowledge, and getting these ideas out there because that's where I find most of my books that I start looking at, right? Is the library. Right. So it's a, and, and, sorry, I wanted to back up one more time too. I think about gains going to the library. That story right. that you and that's I both know. I was gonna start there. Sorry. The idea, <laughs> no, 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 no. That's that's great. It reminded me. Um the idea of the library of a neutral space is not is not real, right? That's that it's it's always been a politicized space. Like you said, you think about Gaines or Richard Wright, like not being able to navigate a library freely, right? Or having access to a library um, right there, you know, and because a library is not only a space where you engage with the written word for free, right? But it's also a meeting place. It's a place where ideas get exchanged. It's a place of public programming. Um, and so for, for the Lafayette Library, um, it's in recent years has become the highly politicized space where people are starting to realize that you can do, right, um, the public programming is political in ways that they may not necessarily agree with. Like I remember, it, this all starts with Drag Queen Story Hour, right? We all know this. Um, what, so, what, what was Drag Queen Story Hour? That was 2018. Well, so, uh, and this is like all over the country they have these basically drag queens come in and I'm pretty sure people know what drag queen is. They come in and they tell kids stories. Um, and so the controversy was that's grooming my child to think being gay is okay or queer, I should say, because I mean, I don't know the sexuality of a drag queen. It's just a performance of, you know, a man putting on dressing up as a woman. Like, I don't know the sexuality of that, right? But it's queer. And so what happens is, Lafayette um, is fairly conservative, um, even though it sells itself as being a little more progressive than it actually is. And people were upset that this program could happen, right? They felt like it was corrupting the children or something. Um, and so it became a huge topic to where to the point where it got canceled. The, the Drag Queen Story Hour was canceled. Um, and then now you have this highlight, right? This spotlight on the library as a political space that is trying to push progressive ideas. So any programming that you're now going to bring to the library, people are more attuned to it in ways that before they would hold, we did Gaines's, um the, his 50th celebration of Catherine Carmier with little fanfare from anyone, right? Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I, I forgot about that. I don't yeah, think we had a huge turnout for that. Pushback. And it had a great turnout and it went fine, right? Um, and I'll be honest, I'm not sure you could do that today. And that's sad, right? That's really sad. So the issue, so I think like two years ago, they wanted to bring in um yeah the voting rights thing the voting rights thing they wanted to talk about (sighs) voting rights in the south Mm -hmm. particularly in americans and and they got and and the university this was a statewide grant from the Mm -hmm. louisiana humanities right and a couple professors at ulfe got the grant to do it Mm -hmm. at the public library right basically in conjunction with the public library go ahead they were told that you've got to present the opposite political perspective or point of view, which I would have liked someone to explain what 
the Klan. I mean, I don't know. Well, you know well, when, when you say that, basically what you're saying, this is a program about voting rights and the history of voting rights. Mm-hmm. When you say the opposite point of view, you're saying voter suppression essentially is what you're saying. Right. And why would you present like I don't this isn't this is presenting a legacy of a history. This isn't a debate like this isn't what that is. But I do think two things. Um we are now moving in an age of highly politicized uh, everything, right? So everything is highly politicized. So people are more attuned to this. And I think too, you put African-American in front of it around the time of 2020, people's hackles are going to be raised. Um, and I think, I think what happens is, you know, people are paying more attention than they would normally pay attention to this stuff. Because like I said, had you done that program, two, three, four years ago, definitely before 2020, um, no one says a thing, nobody cares. But we are highly, we're more highly politicized. And now you have these discussions about critical race theory. So if you're bringing up race at all, you're trying to shape the narrative to be more progressive, right? You're trying to have a political agenda. If you bring up anything about gay people, you are grooming children to become gay or something. Um, if you bring up you know, any, any minority point of view or anything like that, you have an agenda and everything should be neutral, right? You know, the library should be a neutral space. Classroom should be a neutral space. Everything should be neutral. Um, but the and- library, like you said, has never been a neutral space. Cause I think oh. about, I think about Gaines and the story that he always told about going to the library for the first time mm-hmm. and not seeing any black writers in the library. This right. is in the forties in California. Right. Mm-hmm. And then looking around and the only thing that he connected with were text by white authors, white American authors or Russian authors or Irish authors about peasantry. So Turgenev and Dostoevsky, the Russian author, Tolstoy, and then like Cather and Steinbeck and people like that. And he was like, I wanted to basically put myself on the shelf is kind of the metaphor he used in, in Autobiography Machine Pittman. But I also think too, and I don't know much about this story, Mm-hmm. But I think about Lillian Smith and her brother, Frank. Frank worked in the government in Clayton, and he actually started the Raven County or the Clayton Library out of his office. It was mm-hmm. like a little section of his office. There's a picture of Frank and Lillian in front of the bookmobile that they started. So this was been like in the 30s or the 40s, right? That the library was initiated in Raven County or in Clayton. Mm-hmm. So they understood the importance of that kind of space. And then Paula you know, Lillian's partner was a librarian. She was a librarian at Tallulah Falls. So the role kind of that libraries play within a society, I would say as a democratizing kind of space. Yep. yep. And they yeah. are, they are political as well. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know what, what to say about it, but, but they are a space where these conversations can happen. They're a public square type of space. And yeah. they're a space where individuals can encounter different viewpoints Mm-hmm. Partly through the displays, those displays are important because they show you new books that have come out. They show yeah. you things that you may not necessarily have come across, right? That's right. That's right. Well, the displays are important because you know they are highlighting, right, a text that you should engage. Like it's making an argument, and to the extent that, like you, you told me, you was like, I kind of understand, you know, this desire to not make that space too uh politically charged right, the, the, the director way. the director basically said i'm removing these to thwart off any kind of political pushback is essentially what he said 
Well, right. and, and when you think about it in the logistics of it, because you and I have both engaged with the public library and with Lafayette Parish School Board, just trying, you know, the when you bring a book forth to them, you know, it's like, okay, can you put this on display? And you're highlighting a text. And so I can see how he would think these people, if I put a display, then I'm basically just pointing out what text that people are going to protest to ban in my library. So I get that. Like, you know, I get, cause a display is basically, you're putting a big arrow and saying this book, this book, this book. Right. Basically. Um, and he's saying, I want to keep these books in this space for the people who are actually going to come to the space and read it. And other people are going to take a picture, screenshot it and share it all on Facebook and social media. Without even reading the book. Without even reading the book and trying to get it banned. Um, and that's something that's really scary too. This idea of people banning books and like, actually really trying to ban books and so my brother asked me um I was watching a, 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 a new special and they were talking about the banning of books and they talked about banning beloved and and you know it's a story you know it's a story about slavery and he said why would anybody want to ban that like that's weird and I said it doesn't they don't say they want to ban it because it talks about slavery what they say is that it has extreme sexual situations it has sexual violence it right. has rape it has assault and my children are not ready to read about that right so they don't say i don't i want to ban it because of the topic they say that it has grown adult situations in it and then you know remove it from that library you know what you know why lillian smith's strange fruit was banned from the library in detroit and in boston right right why do you, you know what the, the, the sex scenes or something no why because the four letter f word that oh. was their justification yeah. that she used. It's used in there like once or twice. Mm -hmm. And that was why it was banned because it was obscene with that word. Right. When right. in actuality, it is what's underneath. And I think back to the reasons why Gaines is a less before dying has been challenged or banned because of the nipple, you know, right. Vivian and the, the cane field. Right. right. That's not And I remember that challenge to the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. Mm -hmm. And I forgot exactly why he chat, why the, this guy challenged it. He didn't have a kid at the school. I think his like nephew went to the school, but basically challenged him one of Miss Jane Pittman band for various reasons and not the reasons that you would, that you would think that it's telling the story of an African-American woman from slavery to the start of the civil rights movement. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, people, part of the thing that, you know, I think people like us and the work that we do that we have to recognize is that, um, a lot of people are not ready or able to process the narratives or the ideas that we're putting forth in the world. That's a lot of people are just not open to that, not able to do it. Um, I mean, and, and I've had this discussion many times with my students where it's like, you read something, you realize that, oh, everything I've been taught or, you know, has been presented to me in this very specific way is actually not how it was or it's not the truth or it's more complicated than that and now i have to be open to accepting that you know the world's a bigger place and there's more nuance there um usually people get that in college right usually go off to college and you know your college professors present you with this information it is what it is some so what's happening i think with regards to critical race theory stuff and the queer theory panic uh, you know all of that stuff is people are trying to take some of these pedagogical strategies and bring them to K through 12. And I don't even think K, but like lower grades and the parents know and understand they cannot really necessarily control 
the collegiate atmosphere. And, you know, they can't do that much with it, but they can definitely control K through 12. Um, and so I don't know if you knew this, but Stephen Miller, who worked for the Trump White House um, and his wife, his wife, when she was in high school, she tried to get beloved banned from the reading list. She and she opted out of, you know, engaging in it, like learning. It. And she was Mike Pence's uh, press, uh, not press secretary, yeah. but one of his assistants, his aides. Um, these people know and understand that what you know they want to get into the good colleges and ivy leagues and places too so they know if they go to yale uh georgia tech lsu tulane wherever they are going to have to do this work but they don't want to have to do it any lower than that they need to have their identity and ideal ideologies solidified in their children or their young people before they go off to college and so the fear is that they're going to start them early thinking about slavery as evil and thinking about this is this and all of that stuff like they don't want that right um they want them to have their narrative solidified so that when they go to college they can reject or at least not engage with those narratives as presented to them at that level because i was telling some students today i said it never failed at ul and I don't want to drag you all about that, but the truth of it is, is if I present, if I assign something that dealt with race explicitly or by a black writer, it never failed. Half the class was not reading it. So I have, I have stories with students who have pushed back. There's one story I always think about with a student in an American lit survey. And mm -hmm. it was like maybe 50% African-American people of color and women writers compared mm -hmm. to like 50%, you know, white male writers. This was American lit 1865 through 1900 or present. Right. Mm -hmm. And the student asked me about it, like the first day of class, like, you know, why is there so many people of color on this syllabus? I'm like, it's not, it's like 50%. Yeah. And at that moment, students still showed up to class, still did the work, still did all this stuff, but disengaged like from that moment on. And I think too, kind of we need i want to end on this i think to lillian smith's colors of the dream i was just looking at this section today in class with a student but the section where that 17 year old comes up to her and says why are you teaching us this stuff you're teaching us to hate our parents and all this type of stuff why are you teaching us that we can change things and she's like you're telling us to break the law as yeah. part of it and yeah. then she also gets to the point where she's like i'm going to tell my kids not to to put money above everything else not to care about everything else basically right i'm just disengaging from this and Lillian basically says, what does she tell her? I was looking at earlier because I think it's a pretty powerful kind of thing. And I know that it's powerful language. So this is what, what she says. The 17-year-old says, I'll teach my children not to think about things like this. I'll yeah. teach them that money comes first before people. That's more important. I won't let them be hypocrites like me. And then Lillian's response is, in other words, you would make little Nazis out of them. Oh. <laughs> and the girl says, at least it would be honest. Wow. And then Lillian says, I'm afraid honesty doesn't have much to do with it, though it would be logical. Your feelings have stampeded a little, haven't they? And then this is the key, I think, from what the girl says. And this is the key for a lot of these discussions. I'm scared, is what mm -hmm. she says. Mm -hmm. I don't like the future. It doesn't. And I didn't notice this. I just noticed this right here. She says, I'm scared. I don't like the future. It doesn't seem to belong to us. And there's a couple of ways to take that. One yeah, is yeah. that it doesn't seem to belong to people who want to change it. But mm -hmm. two, it doesn't belong to me as a white woman. 
Right. I don't know what to believe about anything. I'm 17 years old and I have no idea what is wrong and what is right. Not enough to know how to live. And even if I knew I couldn't live it down here, mm-hmm. I lay there tonight trying to tell myself that segregation is right. I said it over and over as I used to do as a child when I was memorizing. I said, daddy knows more than we know here at camp. There's no sense in worrying about it, but it didn't help. You see, I want so much to go home and to be decent about things, not make folks mad, just live what I believe is right. But how? Mm-hmm. I think it's that I think it's that fear that Smith taps into in Killers and Elsewhere of being scared, of not knowing what to do, of being afraid to look at yourself in the mirror and the history mm-hmm. and the truth in the mirror and thinking about what it's going to say about you, even if you didn't commit those acts. And I think, I think that's what's key with her and important with her. I agree. And I agree hundred percent. I think that, like I said, that's not my ministry. Um, it, when it, no, when it comes to race, I mean, I, I don't know what that feels like to feel afraid of you've been taught a certain way. And now you have to rethink everything, you know, or understand about race. And the problem with that is society moves at such a fast clip. It will change before you've you've even kind of like gotten your equilibrium. But I know with gender, I'm seeing a lot of men struggle with that. And I know with sexuality, a lot of people are struggling with that, like trans rights and stuff. People are like, wait, wait, I don't know. I'm scared about what the future is going to be because I'm not used to this. And so if I can have a little empathy, I guess, I can see how when things progress and it you can see that there's a change and a sea change and you're not ready for that or you you don't have any preparation for that um it will take you out of things and 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 I'll say this um we can't underestimate how much people are working against like some of these changes going forward um but I do think because one thing we can take from gains is the change is going to happen whether you're ready or not. You'll just wake up the next day and you can't ride, right? Yeah. You can't ride anymore. I think um, about Jack Marshall. Mm-hmm. And then you have to also think about, but one thing you can't do and what Lillian Smith is trying to help those students is you you can prepare because this is happening, right? This is happening. Um, I think about all the time I told my sister, I said, and in the last 10 years, I go through the New York Times book review. I go through the recommendations on Amazon. I go through the, you know, the hoity-toity magazines that recommend texts. And almost every text that they recommend has a queer storyline or a queer main character. So I've been reading books about queer people consistently just from being on those lists for years. Now that we're having these conversations about queer issues, I don't feel like I'm like, oh, whoa, what happened? I'm not aware. You know, like I feel like in a lot of ways as as society progresses and changes, there's little things that we can do, right, to prepare ourselves for those inevitable changes. Well, and I don't want to go back, you know? It's what Lillian says. And I, th- I think I think we'll end on this. This is what she says again and again and again. And this is her recurring metaphor. And I think this is what you're talking about with reading books by queer authors or with queer storylines. With part of the reason, I think eventually the reason why I went to African-American literature and and Mm -hmm. took the path that I took, it's Mm -hmm. the building of bridges between one person and another. And part of the way to do that is through informing yourself and educating yourself through literature. Right. As you and I both know, through what text you read, what text you choose to read, what you choose to engage with. Doesn't mean you have to agree with it, but it gives you, 
it opens up the avenue for conversation instead of just blasting people down by screaming online in all caps. Right. And then I guess to leave you with, so like I said, I'm reading normal people and they have this quote. Um, it's a, it's a decent book. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to hundred percent recommend it, but it's not bad. I Shelly about it. And she said, I couldn't stop reading it. That's pretty much it. Like I'm, I can't necessarily say it was good or bad, but I couldn't stop reading it, but he has a good, Sally Rooney has a really good quote. And what the quote says is basically like on reading literature, um, and, and how literature presents human interactions and what it thinks about how people interact has sort of prepared one of the characters for how, for real intimacy between people. And I thought that was very profound, um, meaning the world that's presented in literature may not be 100% how the real world operates, but what it can do is prepare you for intimacy. Um, and I think that's true. And um, that's, that's Smith and Baldwin right there. Right. I'm thinking um, the creative process by Baldwin that I just read and then Smith's, oh, the role of the poet and the, the role of the poet and award of demagogues or something like that. Mm-hmm. But Baldwin basically says that, you know, the role of the artist, the artist is despised in his lifetime or her lifetime. Mm-hmm. But the role of the artist is to help us see and make sense of the chaos within us. Right. And part of the thing with Smith is, to see and explore the humanity within us, right? And I think that's what Baldwin's doing too, and to forge those connections. Mm-hmm. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. And and it's a and you know, not to belabor the point, but to complicate them enough such that you allow and engage your own complications and all of that and and allow for other people to have them too. Right. It's it depending on like in, you know, to wrap up with Smith some of the stuff she writes about was regarding, you know, interracial engagements, intimacy, or just interactions. She really tries to understand in a psychoanalytic way, like, why is it like this that, you know, and, and I, I have, I mean, I think Faulkner tries to do a similar thing through character, but she did it through herself. Like she kind of claimed those thoughts and feelings. And that's what I think is important. Yeah. And, and I think that's what, you know, if people ask me, what should a white person read to sort of like grapple with the racial issues of this country? I would say read a white person who tried to do that work before you even read a black person. You know what I mean? Read Lillian Smith, uh, read her uh, and, and read Killers of the Dream in particular um, before you even try to read Baldwin or Toni Morrison because you need to do some internal work before, you know, understanding all these perspectives. But anyway, that's how I feel. Thank you for taking time with us today. No problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about Lillian E. Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu/les.